The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. It is Father's Day, and like we did last month with Mother's Day, I think it's fitting to address not only the topic of fatherhood, but address the broader topic of manhood. Like we did with the ladies, we addressed the topic of motherhood, but we also addressed the larger topic of womanhood. And I think it's, it's the right thing to do on a day like today, where our country itself sets aside a time to recognize and honor fathers, and especially, too, given our current cultural moment. The very idea of womanhood is being called into question, and that very same ideology is also questioning the very concept of manhood, calling it a simply a cultural convention or a societal convention. And so there is significant confusion in our culture today about what truly makes a woman a woman and what truly makes a man a man and what constitutes genuine masculinity. And apart from Christ and the truth of Scripture, there will continue to be confusion. You'll never actually be able to answer the question, what is a man? Or what is masculinity without Christ and without the wisdom of Scripture? In fact, in reaction against strong feminism and the pervasive confusion that's happening in our culture with regard to gender, some men have attempted to recapture masculinity by focusing almost exclusively uh, on a man's physical superiority, his natural assertiveness, his athletic dominance, or his career ambitions. And so you have a segment of society where men are recognizing, hey, there's something wrong here, I need to address this, but they address it in an unbalanced way. Others may be more balanced and they may speak of integrity and personal responsibility, but without Christ in Scripture... These visions of masculinity will always be lacking in appropriate balance and priorities. It's just the case. You can't truly know what a man is or who he is supposed to be or who he is created to be or what real masculinity is without Christ and without the Word of God. And even in Paul's day, there was a, uh, a need for this call for men to be men. And if there was ever a time for men to be men, it, was, it is today. And, and Paul experienced this very thing in his own day. He needed to exhort Christian men about what God had created them to be. And that's the text that Pastor Bob has already read for us. Let's look there briefly. We'll start in this text. We're going to look at many texts today. So be ready to thumb through your Bibles or click on your Bible app on your phones. We'll see who's quicker. Well, that'll be the real test. Can you get to the passage quicker on your phone or in your Bible? I think you can still do it in your physical Bibles, but we'll use that as a challenge for another time. But this is what Paul says. He says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Now that phrase, act like men, is actually one word in the original Greek text. But it's entirely appropriate to translate it this way, act like men. Some other translations might say, be courageous. It should probably be, act like men, just like it's written here in the ESV. Act like men. But you do have to ask the question, why all of a sudden does Paul say something like this that addresses specifically the men of the congregation? Because he has addressed the congregation as a whole already in the book of 1 Corinthians. And he's already addressed women specifically as well. Why all of a sudden at the close of the book, Does the Apostle Paul 
speaking to the entire congregation, say, specifically now to the men, act like men. Why would he do that? I think a little reflection would lead us to conclude he does that because as the men go, so goes the congregation. You can't escape it. As the men go in that congregation in Corinth, so goes the congregation. That, that congregation in Corinth was a mess, doctrinally, practically, personally. And if the men did not step up to, as Paul says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love, then that church would become even further infiltrated with false teaching. It would be even further infiltrated with moral compromise, lack of direction, heavy-handedness, and spiritual confusion. Without the men acting like men, the church would fall prey to the enemy. And that's our situation as well. As the men in this congregation go, so goes the congregation. Men, just speaking to you for a moment, what do I mean for a moment? I'm speaking to you to do this entire sermon. But to speak to you directly here for a moment, the health of this church and the spiritual and physical safety of this church and the spiritual well-being and fruitfulness of the women of CBC depends on us being men. This is our lot in life. It's a yoke that Christ has given us to bear. Now, we know that in Christ, His yoke is easy and His burden is light when we are empowered by Him and His Spirit. But it is still a yoke we must wear. Men, we are called to act like men. But if we only draw from our own wisdom, which we are immediately tempted to do, I can see this in myself, I can see it in others, I see it in our society, the immediate temptation when we hear the call to act like men in response to all the confusion out there is to begin to appeal to my own wisdom. Oh, I know what masculinity looks like. I know what, it's, what it is. We have to be careful here because that will, if we listen to our own wisdom, we will be led in an imbalanced and wrong direction ultimately. We have to answer this question by turning to Scripture. So here's what I'm going to say just from the get-go. What do I believe, biblically speaking, constitutes genuine masculinity? I'm going to give you three features and we're only going to focus on one today given our current cultural moment. I believe... Genuine masculinity or manhood can be summed up in a few words. It's courageous, Christ-dependent leadership. It's courageous, Christ-dependent protection. And it's courageous, Christ-dependent provision. But for the sake of time, I'm only going to focus on courageous, Christ-dependent leadership. True masculinity is not primarily expressed in one's love for hunting or steaks or trucks or MMA or guns, or knives. Although men are typically more drawn to those things. Why? Because we're different than women. That's why. Men are typically drawn to those things more than women are, but that's just because we're different because of how God has created us to be different. And those differences are expressed in some of those ways. Nevertheless, true masculinity is not primarily expressed in those ways as though if you didn't like to hunt or you didn't like steak or you didn't have a passion for the outdoors, if you didn't drive a big truck or any of those kinds of things, that you weren't somehow masculine or manly. That's not true at all. 
And we have to resist that temptation to listen to the, the culture's response to gender confusion by attaching genuine masculinity to those kinds of, why might we say, superficial realities. Those things express our differences and they're good and they're wonderful. But they are not what constitute genuine masculinity, biblically speaking. True masculinity is expressed mainly in Christ-dependent, courageous leadership, loving protection, and diligent provision. And as I said, we're going to focus on leadership. And I want us to see, if you're following along in your bulletins, I want us to see that the call for men to be leaders in their relation to women is rooted in the creation. It's rooted in the creation. You can't escape it. It's not rooted in some sort of cultural ideology. It's not rooted in some sort of ancient societal system. It's rooted in creation. And so we have to see this. And so we do need to turn again back to Genesis 2. And you might say, Derek, don't you preach like every sermon from Genesis 2 and 3? Well, yeah, a lot of them. But it's because so much of what uh, Scripture is uh, speaking to in terms of in terms of leadership and manhood is found in Genesis. Genesis chapter 2 and just specifically Genesis 2 and 3 as we'll see. So Genesis chapter 2. Let's see what's going on here. What we do need to first note is that Genesis 2 is not a separate creation count from Genesis chapter 1. And that's that's been posited in, in uh, academic scholarship. It's not true. You have Genesis 1, which is an, a, a broad description of what happens in the creation. God creates in Genesis chapter 1, days 1 through 6, and then what Genesis 2 is, is actually zooming in on what happens on day 6. Day 6 is when God creates man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. That's what happened on day 6. What Genesis 2 does is it focuses in on day 6 and says, okay, I'm going to explain in detail what happened in Genesis 6. Why is this detail necessary? Because day 6 is when God created the crown jewel of his creation. Man in his own image. Man and woman in his own image. So Genesis chapter 2 is going to give us a long detailed account of all that happened in day 6. And so that's what we have here. And the first thing we need to notice is that the man is created First, he's, he's created first. Let's, let's see what's happening here. Let's look down in verse 5 of chapter 2. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and there was watering the whole face of the ground. And then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living Creature. So here you have, in the creation of man and woman, day six, you're starting off with the creation of man. He's created first, he's created from the dust of the ground, and God breathes into him the breath of life. Next, what you find is God's going to plant a garden in Eden, that's verse eight, and he's going to put the man there whom he had formed, and he's going to cause up to, to, cause to spring up every tree that is pleasant for, to the sight and good for food, that's verse nine. The tree of the life is in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is also there. And then Moses is going to give us some geographical details about this land. It's quite rich in terms of gold and other important geological features. But then we come back to the man in verse 15. Verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. 
Now, this word work refers to the, the kind of work that he had been doing, tilling. He would have been in charge of tilling the soil, preparing the soil, causing things to grow. He needs to work the land. He needs to work the garden. He needs to tend it, care for it, be productive in it. And then this word for keep is a word that refers to protection. It's a word that's used elsewhere in the Old Testament. It refers to protecting the king. It refers to keeping of sheep, protecting of sheep. He needs to work in the garden, be fruitful and productive in it, but he also needs to protect it, implying that there might be some possible infiltration from enemies. So he needs to work it and to keep it. But then also, God entrusts to him the divine commandment. Verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat you shall surely die. So, what I want us to see is that prior to the woman being brought into the picture, you have the man here created first. He's created out of the dust of the ground. He's entrusted with work. He's entrusted with protecting the garden. He's entrusted with the divine commandment. The implication is that when Eve would come along, she would come along as a helper to Adam, not as a commander or master over him. And this order of things also implies that Adam would need to lead his wife in her understanding of the divine instruction. It was entrusted to Adam so that he would accurately hand it down to his wife. Now these implications become more clear as we turn to 1 Timothy, but we're not going to turn there yet. We need to still see some important details in the narrative. In verse 18, the Lord God said that it was not good for the man to be alone. And he wanted Adam to see this for himself. He brings out the animals for him. And, and previous to bringing out the animals, he says, I will make a helper fit for him. He, Adam, but Adam needs to recognize that, that he needs a helper fit for him as well. Verse 19 and out of the ground the Lord God had, uh, out of the ground that the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, he'd already created them in the previous uh, day. God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. But what happens? Adam is there. It's not good for him to uh, be alone. God parades the animals before him. He names it, but he's looking around. He's like, there, there's nothing here that can be a suitable helper to me. He recognized it immediately. And what does God do? Well, we know how the narrative goes, but we need to see this detail. Verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And he was then thrilled at what God had created. Among the animals, there's not a helper suited, suitable for him, not fit for him, because they were not like him. Now there is someone like him. But the glory of it is that she's not like him also. She's different and wonderfully different. She brings so much to the table that he can't bring, right? And he stands and he's like, wow, you are now Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That, that part, taken out of man, that's an important historical detail. These things did happen, and the New Testament authors believe that they happened this way, and they attach very significant things about manhood and leadership to these things. Now, let me ask you, 
is this order of creation, the man being brought forth first and then the woman being brought out of the, the man, is this order of creation merely a statement of fact or is it significant? Is it mere, did God just say, this is kind of a cool way to do it, I'll just do it this way? Or is there something significant that God is doing in the very creation of man and woman that signals something important about male leadership? Well, we don't have to be left hanging. I do believe that this narrative itself will actually underscore the importance of male leadership. But we don't have to be left hanging in a kind of hermeneutical interpretational fog. We actually have an inspired apostle telling us this very thing. That there is significance attached to the very order of creation. 1 Timothy 2, 11-14. You can turn there if you like. We won't be there long. But I do want to point out one important thing here. In this context, Paul is writing to Timothy to tell him how to structure the church. He needs to structure it and order it in a particular way. He'll go on in chapter 3 to talk about the leaders of the church and what their qualifications need to be. At the very least, they need to be men. And he addresses that issue in verse 11 of chapter 2. He says in verse 11, he says, Let the woman uh, learn quietly with all submissiveness, Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet with regard to the authoritative teaching of God's word to the mixed congregation as a, as a leader or elder or uh, teacher. But why does he instruct such a thing? Why would Paul say that? Is he, where did he get that principle? Is he following along with the misogynistic Roman culture? Is that where he got that? And he's just kind of following in lockstep with Roman culture. He's now going to apply it to the church. Or, as some have suggested, is he insecure in his own manhood so he has to put the woman in his place? Is that why Paul is writing those things? Not even close. Look at what he does. He grounds this principle about church organization and church leadership. He grounds it in the creation order. Verse 13, For Adam was formed first. Isn't that amazing? The Apostle Paul reading Genesis 1 and 2 says that there is significance in the order by which God created the man and the woman. He created the man first and that's to signal to all created order that the man is designated as the leader in relation to the woman. For Adam was created first. But, we, but Paul also sees something else in the creation as well. Let's turn over now to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He sees not only in the order that the uh, man and woman were created, he sees not only something there of significance for leadership, male leadership there in the order, but also by the way that the woman was brought into existence. The method that she was brought about into existence is different than Adam's. Entrance into existence. Adam was formed out of the dust of the ground. Eve was created from Adam. Look at verse 2 of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. It says this. Now, I will preface chapter 11 here by saying that everything that Paul's talking about in terms of head coverings, it's challenging to know exactly all that he's, 
he's talking about what are the head coverings, what were they used for, and so on. But what's not difficult to discern is that the main over, uh, overarching issue is leadership. Those in leadership and those who are to follow leadership. He says in verse 2, he says, Now I command you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So that's, that's the main issue that's going on here. The larger issue is leadership within Corinth. What these head coverings were and how to use them, that's, that's more challenging to sort out. What's not challenging to sort out is the issue of leadership here. But I want us to see that Paul roots now this issue of leadership, the, the man to the woman, in creation again. This is not something cultural that he's attempting to construct out of the, the Romans' society that he was a part of. He's rooting this in creation. Look at what he says in verse 7. He says, For a man ought not to cover his head. So the issue here was the, the covering of the head with some sort of head covering to indicate that the, the wife was in submission to her husband. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Verse 8, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was the man created for woman, but woman for man. The main issue with the head coverings was that they would signal who was in leadership and who was under leadership. It would be unfitting, therefore, for the man to have a symbol uh, of a submission on his head because that would signify or signal that the woman was in leadership over him. But how does Paul get to that point? He gets to that point by saying, remember how the woman was created. She was created from the man. She was created in the image of God. She is the man's equal in terms of being in the image of God. They are both equally the image of God, worthy of dignity and honor and respect. But she was taken out of his side to designate that the man is now, in relation to her, the leader. Not that she's inferior, but only that they have different roles. The purpose for which she was created also signals that the man is leader in relation to her. It says, neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. The woman was created to be the man's helper, to be Adam's helper, not the other way around. But this is not master-slave relations here. This is not master-slave language. The woman was not created to be at the man's every beck and call. And unfortunately, it's, that's the way that many women have been treated throughout history. That's not what Paul's saying here. This isn't master-slave language. No, she is his helper in their joint effort to fulfill God's calling for humanity. She is to bring her gifts and abilities and her competencies to bear on their task to subdue the earth, exercise dominion, and to be fruitful and multiply. And if, if I would encourage you, ladies, you weren't here, go back and listen to the Mother's Day message. Women are highly valued here at this church because we, we recognize that you were created in God's image and that God has given you so much and that you bring so much to the relationship, to the church, to the marriage. Things that are absolutely incalculable, incalculable, you bring. And so you are highly valued. Nevertheless, in God's wisdom and God's design, he's designated the man to be your leader, your protector, and your provider. 
And here specifically, Paul is emphasizing leadership. And he's saying that that is built into the very way that man and woman were brought about in the creation. The man is the leader in this endeavor, this calling to subdue the earth, exercise dominion, and be fruitful and multiply. She is his equal as God's image and a perfect complement to him. And I'll say it again. I'm so glad that it's just not a bunch of guys here. Like, we, we love the ladies of this congregation, and you are highly valued. She is the man's perfect complement with her gifts and her beautiful femininity. But our roles are different, and it's not arbitrary. It's not something that a group of men made up years ago. It's rooted in creation. So Paul is actually recognizing that account in Genesis is true and historically real. It's not a fable, it's not a myth, kind of describing how things happen. They happened this way in their significance. Adam was created first, then Eve, and Eve was created out of Adam's very body. Well, let's turn back to Genesis chapter 3, because I believe the account itself, the narrative itself, is underscoring and highlighting the failure of male leadership, among other things. It's teaching other things, but that, at the very least, is teaching the failure of male leadership. Adam and Eve were in the bliss of newlywed life. And we all, well, I should say many of us know what that is like, the bliss of newlywed life. And they were experiencing that and enjoying that when all of a sudden a sly, crafty little serpent, well, I don't know if he's little, I don't know how big he was, but it was a, he was a serpent. Satan had embodied himself as a serpent and he meandered into the garden and his strategy was to tempt God's new image bearers. And the serpent went straight for the leader. No, that's not true. He didn't go for the leader. He went to the woman precisely because she wasn't intended by God to be the leader. Satan's strategy, this is so vital for you ladies, and for us guys too, as we recognize, as we try to perceive what are Satan's strategies to undermine our church and undermine our families. Satan's strategy was to separate Eve from her husband and then to load her with the burden she was never made to bear. Namely, the spiritual leadership, protection, and provision of this new family. He got them separated and then focused his attention on the woman and then put upon her the burden that only Adam was meant to bear. And so what, he, what does he do? He starts with a little sophisticated-sounding skepticism. Did God really say? That sounds so intriguing. It sounds so sophisticated. It sounds so intelligent. It sounds so reasonable. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Well, that's not at all what he said. We know that. He actually said, no, you are to eat of all this abundance that I've given you, right? That's what he, he said. He said, the... Uh, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. That's what he said. So he begins his strategy by introducing a little sophisticated-sounding skepticism, but then also making God sound stingy. Right? That was his strategy. Well, Eve responds by repeating a mostly right version of God's commandment. Quoting Eve now, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. That's close, but it's not exactly what God had said. God said this, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. 
God's command was enjoy, to enjoy the abundance of the creation that he had given. He specifically named the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so you had to know exactly where it was and what it was. And he never said anything about touching it. Did he? No, he didn't. So at some level, there's a breakdown of communication between Adam and his wife about the commandment, and Adam never steps in to address that. He never steps in to correct that. We're not told if it was Adam's fault. We're not told whose fault it was. But the point is that at no point does Adam step in to address or correct this miscommunication that had happened. Well, anyways, Satan jumps on that last phrase that the the woman uses, lest you die. And now that he's introduced doubt into the spiritual atmosphere, he can now directly contradict God's word. He says this, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. You know why? Because God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like him knowing good and evil. He's keeping something from you. He's keeping something good from you. Well, now Eve is back on her heels. And she's now considering the forbidden tree. And it looks attractive. She saw that it was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. Um, And by the way, in verse 9, every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, they'd already been given. Chapter 2, verse 9. Well, she sees that the tree is good for food, that is a delight to the eyes. And now it's a desire to make one wise. And what happens? Well, she eats... She hands to her husband who is with her, and he eats, and now everything is ruined. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Everything's ruined. Everything's ruined. You might be wondering, what does this have to do with male leadership? What are you getting at, Derek? Well, I believe there's good evidence in this text that Adam was with Eve the entire time. He was with her the entire time. So just picture that in a moment in your heads. Satan is there. He knows the setup. He knows what God has done. He knows the order of creation. He knows all of that. And precisely because he knew that Adam was to lead in this relationship and he'd been entrusted with the divine commandment, he goes after the woman, puts upon her a burden she was not intended to bear, goes after her, and Adam's there the whole time. I believe that he was there the whole time because... It's natural to expect that they were in verse 24 of chapter 2 where it says that they shall become one flesh and they're both naked and not ashamed. It's natural to see them as together. God had just brought this companion along to Adam and they're to share in the closest intimacy that any two people can experience, right? She is his closest companion and they are to be together. So it's natural to see that, that they would be together, with one another, standing side by side. Second, this is really crucial. When Satan addresses Eve, he uses the plural you. You, um, He says this, um, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And that you is actually plural. And then when Eve responds, she uses the plural we. You might be thinking, well, well who cares? Well, it's important because when God addressed Adam initially in chapter 2, verse 15, he addresses him in the singular, which I think gives evidence that they're both there. And he's addressing both of them, but he's turning his deception towards Eve. Did God say, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden, you too? Is that what he said? 
Third, another important piece of evidence, it says that he gave, that Eve gave to her husband who was with her. Now, why would Moses include that little detail? Because in order for Eve to give the fruit to Adam, he had to be there by definition. He didn't, you know, she didn't wind up and give him a, you know, throw it across the garden. He, she, she gave it to him who was with her. What's the point of making that little detail if she, Moses wasn't intending to say he was with her the whole time? Another piece of evidence is that this account is flanked on both sides with, regard, uh, with a mention of nakedness. They are naked and unashamed in verse 25 of chapter 2. And when they eat, they are now recognized that they are naked. So it seems that Moses is indicating that what was true in the first reference of nakedness, namely that they are together, is true in the second mention of nakedness, that they were together. And then finally, when it says that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, this is verse 8, and the man and the wife hid themselves. The, the Hebrew literally says the man hid himself and the woman herself. They All man for himself, every man for himself, so to speak. They split up. And, I, and I, I believe that what's being indicated here is that this is an unnatural event. This is the first time for this to happen. They're now splitting up, and they weren't supposed to split up. They're supposed to be together. And now for the first time, they have split up because they've sinned, and now they're looking out only for themselves, and so they run from the Lord and hide individually. This was a first-time event. I think if you take those five pieces of evidence, some are stronger than others, but if you take them as a whole, I think it's pointing towards Adam being with Eve the whole time. Why make such a big deal that Adam was with Eve when Satan tempted her? Because it highlights that male passivity is what led to Eve's sin and Adam's sin. Indeed, if I am right about Adam being with Eve during the temptation, you could say that the entire fall of the human race was due to one man's passivity. God had tasked Adam with the cultivation and protection of the garden. He had entrusted him with the divine commandment. God had designated him as the leader and protector and provider of his family. And during the entire time his precious wife was accosted by Satan, Adam never steps in. He never gets in Satan's face and says, beat it. He never corrects the wrong things that are being saying about God and his word. Are you kidding me? God being stingy? Get out of here, Satan. We know he's not stingy. Yes, we know what he said. No, none of that. His wife is being loaded with a burden she was never intended to bear. He's just over there. I don't know what he's doing. Playing on his iPhone. Right? Totally passive the entire time. He never rebukes Satan's mishandling of God's word. He doesn't direct his wife to put the fruit back and to walk away from the garden. She hadn't sinned by touching it. She hadn't sinned by recognizing its qualities. They sinned when they Eight, he was totally passive the entire time. That's why it's significant to determine whether or not he was there. Male leadership, more specifically, the failure of male leadership is the theme of Genesis 2 and 3, and male passivity is what led to sin being unleashed on this creation. Kind of a big deal, isn't it? Kind of a big deal for Paul to say, act like men. And it's been this way ever since the garden. Male passivity... In our role as courageous, God-dependent leaders has been the cause of family, church, and national turmoil and collapse for the last six millennia. That's the reality. Passivity is not what God has made us for. 
And I think we know that when we fall into that, guys. We just, we just know. It just doesn't feel right for me to just kind of to go home and just kind of relax and not do anything while, while my wife's doing everything and I'm not giving any thought about the future. I'm not giving any thought about my, lives, my spiritual lives of my wife and my children. It just doesn't feel right. We know that. He's created us to be courageous leaders in righteousness. And we know that Adam was responsible to lead his family in righteousness. Why? Well, I've given you a lot of evidence, but I think this seals the deal. Who does God go to after they've sinned? Who was the first person to eat the fruit? Eve was. Who was the first person that God goes to after they've sinned? Adam. He goes to Adam first. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Why did God go to Adam first? Because Adam was the God-ordained leader of that family. And he blew it, and he failed, and he needed to answer for it. Now, you might be saying, you might be getting kind of pumped right now. You're thinking, all right, Derek, yeah, male passivity, out with that. I'm not going to be passive. I don't want to be passive. I want, I'm ready to take on the challenges of godly manhood. And if some of you are saying that right now, I appreciate your zeal. But you're missing a vital step. This is so crucial. And I think this is missing in a lot of so-called Christian calls to manhood. You're missing a vital step. You can't go from there, what we just talked about, straight into male leadership. The answer to male passivity isn't more male activity. That just gets you an unsanctified masculinity of Jordan Peterson or Andrew Tate. Now, I think Jordan Peterson has better things to say than Andrew Tate, but neither of them are coming at masculinity from a biblical, Christ-centered perspective. And so both are going to get it wrong. Both are going to get it wrong. We can't just look to Adam and say, I won't do what he did. I'm not going to be passive. We have to look to a Savior who fulfilled what Adam failed to do and fulfilled what we can't do on our own. That's the step. That's the next step. We recognize we have failed collectively as men. We have failed individually as men. But you don't then just grab yourself by the bootstrap to say, no, I'm going to do better. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We need a man who has fulfilled God's calling on his life perfectly. It's no coincidence that when Jesus begins his ministry, he's led into the wilderness to be tempted. And to be tempted in the same way that Adam and Eve were tempted. Just think about it as we walk through this text here. Satan says, tell these stones to become bread. Right? Jesus has been fasting in the wilderness. Satan tells him, command these stones to become bread. Get your provision in an unlawful way. Come off the path of the cross just for a moment. Does that sound like the tree was good for food? Jesus doesn't yield. He says this, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Oh, okay. How about this? Throw yourself down from the pinnacle of this temple and get glory for yourself when God saves you in a sensational flash of angelic rescue. 
do that. Get your glory. Don't go to the cross to get your glory. Get your glory by a, a sensational act of daring off the, the pinnacle of the temple. Get your glory in an unlawful way. Does that maybe kind of sound like the tree was desired to make one wise? Get your, get your wisdom, get your glory for your wisdom a different way than God has ordained? Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay, all right. My work's cut out for me. You're the son of God after all. Satan says, worship me and I will give you the nations. Get your inheritance in an unlawful way. Kind of sounds like the tree was a delight to the eyes. Jesus responds, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And Satan flees. See, Adam and Eve were tempted and they yielded. The Lord Jesus Christ was tempted and he never yielded. They eventually yielded because they tried to grasp good things in a forbidden way. Jesus Christ was tempted to sin against God and he never yielded. That's why he can be our substitute. Guys, we just, we have, to, we have to fess up. We have to own up to our failures as guys, don't we? I do. I have to do, have to do that every day. I'm looking forward to when the time when I don't have to do that anymore in glory. But we must admit collectively as men in Adam and individually as men, we have failed, every one of us. We've yielded to passivity rather than actively obeying God, and then we've actively followed after sin, doing the exact opposite of what we should be doing. We need someone who's obeyed God perfectly and stood in our place as our Savior, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became a man, loved his Father with his whole heart, soul, and mind. He loved his neighbor as himself perfectly, without mistake or sin. He fulfilled all righteous requirements of God's law in our place. He never was sinfully passive. He always actively pursued the Father's will. And because of that, he is now the unblemished lamb who can die for our sins so that we can be forgiven of all of our failures as guys. Full Complete forgiveness for all your passivity and for all my passivity. Full, complete forgiveness for all the times when you should have been actively seeking the Lord's will for your family and for the others and your other people in your life, and you're actively seeking sin. Full, complete forgiveness in the Lord Jesus, the one who obeyed when we didn't, the one who obeyed and resisted temptation when we did not. The only way to become the men that God desires for us is by rooting our pursuit of true manhood in Jesus Christ. And I've become more and more convinced of this over the years. And it's probably something that I missed early on as I was formulating these own things in my life. We can't get right with God by being a masculine man. That's not how you get right with God. We get right with God by trusting in Jesus Christ, the perfect man so that our sins can be forgiven and we can be in right standing with God and now that we are in Christ we go to battle against the passivity that so easily encroaches in our hearts and lives and now we have the power of God and the forgiveness of God and God's on our side now to help us become the men he's created us to be we must learn to exercise courageous Christ dependent leadership Let's turn now to Hebrews chapter 11. Courage is the need of the hour, gentlemen. 
It's the need of the hour. In every era of redemptive history, courage has been the means by which men have accomplished God's will. You might even say that you can't accomplish God's will without it. Moses was courageous. David was courageous. Gideon, though initially timid, was courageous. Samuel was courageous. Daniel was courageous. After Pentecost, after Pentecost the apostles were courageous. What is courage? Courage is faith-empowered obedience to God in the face of opposition and danger. What is courage? Courage is faith-empowered obedience to God in the faith, face of opposition and danger. But I want us to see where courage comes from. In that definition and in this text we're about to look at, where does courage come from? This is why we must root our masculinity in the grace of God. This is where even some good versions of masculinity in the culture don't get it fully right. In order for us to be truly the men that God has created us to be, we must root our masculinity in the grace of God. Willpower courage will eventually fizzle out or just make you a big jerk, really. Willpower courage will eventually fizzle out or just make you mean. True Christ-exalting courage is fueled by what? It's fueled by faith. You want to be truly courageous? Set your eyes on the Lord Jesus and set your eyes on the promise of an eternal inheritance. Look at how Moses was able to act courageously. It wasn't by his willpower. It wasn't because he was naturally courageous. And that should be an encouragement to some of us who just know we're a little more timid, right? Look at how Moses is able to exercise courage. By faith, verse 24 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Well, that's dangerous. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God and rather to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Wow. Verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. How did he do all this? For he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. Well, you should have been, crazy man. How could you do that? For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. How was Moses able to be courageous? He believed in God and he believed in his promises. Specifically, he believed in God's promise of a future reward. He was able to give up all of that because he believed God's promise of a future reward. What about the other men I mentioned? Look down here at verse 32. What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith, listen to this, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. All those things require quite a bit of courage, do they not? And yet the author of Hebrews is just simply attributing it to their faith. How were they able to endure and accomplish so much? By faith in a future heavenly inheritance. True Christ-dependent courage comes only from faith in a future heavenly reward that enables us to give up reputation, status, wealth, our preferences, even our own lives to do God's will. 
How can we face what is hazardous to our life without certainty of a heavenly reward where God will return to us a million times all that we've lost in this life? How can we do that without faith in God's promise? Godly courage is the fruit of faith in God's promises. So the call to courageous, Christ-dependent leadership is not a call to stir up in your own heart some sort of natural courage that you hope you were born with. Rather, it's to root yourselves in the grace of God given in His promises to give you an inheritance that you can only imagine today. To give you a future inheritance of glory with His Son that makes it such that you can give up all that you have now, including reputation, including status, so that you might do the will of God. Courageous, Christ-dependent leadership is the fruit of faith in God's promises. Well, let's end by applying this to our individual spheres of influence, guys. Let's be practical here as we close out. We are made for leadership. The church needs our leadership. Our families need our leadership. The world needs our leadership. Men, whether you are married or single, whether you are a pastor or an electrical engineer, whether you are a bookkeeper or a CFO, whether you are a teacher or a principal of a school, your God-given calling, my God-given calling, is to lead others in the will of God for the glory of God. That's our calling. And there's no escaping it. And we know it too, don't we? We know it biblically. We know it intuitively. Whatever sphere of influence God has entrusted to you, whether it's a family with wife and children, a small group Bible study here at CBC, a team of employees that you manage, a Bible study that you host every week for evangelistic purposes, here's the calling. Actively lead in those spheres by constantly speaking the truth in love, standing firm in your biblical convictions, encouraging other people under your care towards righteousness, and maintaining your integrity at all costs. If you don't sense that you have an obvious leadership role in your life, lead by example in godly conduct and speaking the truth of, uh, in love, especially as it concerns social issues that the Bible has direct bearing on. Now, when you hear the word lead, This is what I don't want to happen because I could just see this happening. When you hear the word lead, don't think leadership styles, okay? I know some of you in here are thinking, well, Derek, I'm not, I don't control a room when I come in. I don't have a loud voice. I'm not big and strong, you know? Like, how am I to be a leader? Don't think you need to carry yourself with an intimidating brashness or swagger. Or to have a big booming voice. Courageous leadership is found in the steadiness of your convictions in the face of opposition. Not in the size of your biceps. Not in the decibel level of your voice. Not because you can go into a room and command it with your wit and your winsomeness. That's not courageous leadership. Courageous leadership is found in the steadiness of your convictions in the face of opposition. And you can be someone who's 
gentle and quiet in your demeanor, or you can be someone who comes in and, and commands a room. But that has nothing to do with it. It has everything to do with the steadiness of our convictions in the face of opposition. Man, leading at home means actively pursuing your wife in a loving relationship. Actively. Passionately praying and planning for her spiritual good. Watching out for any infiltration from the enemy that she might be vulnerable to. And protecting her from evil in all forms. But I'm not done yet. And I'm preaching to myself. And it's getting pretty convicting. So we might have to move on quickly. It means setting the spiritual tone for your family. Guys, it means planning ahead for your family's spiritual growth, not just reacting to daily problems, which is really easy to do, I've I've learned. It means leading in reconciliation where there's a breach in your relationship with your wife. Guys, we have got to lead in reconciliation with our wives, even if they're at fault. And to not just passively wait like we did in high school. Oh, if she likes me, she'll come around. It's so lame. No, we go after her. It means actively pursuing your kid's spiritual maturity and sanctification. It means seeking reconciliation with your children. You know, I've heard quite a bit, and this is a sad testimony to Christian families. And to Christian dads. And I, and I hope that CBC is different in this regard. But I keep hearing, and I don't hear it here. I hear it elsewhere. So I'm not speaking to CBC guys. I haven't heard it here. But I've heard it elsewhere. Children, adult children, talking about their parents and how they never heard the words, I'm sorry, please forgive me, from their dads. Ever! You guys, me included, need to lead in reconciling with our children when we have sinned against them. And guess what, guys? You've sinned against them. Don't let your pride and wrong understanding of leadership lead you to never reconcile and say, I am sorry, please forgive me to your children. I am surprised each time I hear that. It's hard to believe, actually. We need to lead in reconciliation, intentionally planning talks and outings with our, our kids for the sake of helping them grow into godly young men and women. It means speaking to them regularly about the Lord and His Word, correcting and disciplining them when necessary, actively encouraging them in places where they are growing, and leading by example in godly character. And this is hard because when I get home after a hard day's work, I just want to chill. But I need to step through the door and I need to be ready to actively lead, actively serve, actively think about the good of my family. Man, if you are not married, your spheres of influence will be the church, your extended family, your place of work, maybe circles of group recreation that you, are, uh, you participate in. Whatever ministry you have here at CBC, actively seek the fruitfulness of that group. If you're unsure how to do that, ask the designated leader of that group, and they'll help you. If you're a leader of a particular ministry, lead with excellence, plan and prepare well, exercise diligence in your workplace, be an example of hard work and uncompromising integrity, but also speak the truth in love and do not let the truth of Scripture be undermined by your timid silence. And this is so easy. I know you guys have talked to me. This is an easy thing to let happen. It's not easy to figure out all the ways to navigate the the, 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 the ways of which it, you have to interact with other people and, and talk about the truth and defend the truth. I know it's challenging, but we want to be careful that we don't allow the truth to be undermined by always remaining passively silent. 
Among your extended family members, lead the conversations in righteous directions. Remain gracious and firm in your convictions, always speaking the truth in love. Be willing, guys, to engage friends and family with the gospel and the truth of the Bible. Be a self-initiator when it comes to doing good in your church and in your home and at your work. Is much of this intimidating? Yeah, it's all intimidating. Is, is, is it much of it hard? Yeah, it's all hard, right? But we're not called to lean on our own strength. We're given the Lord Jesus. We're given the freedom now that we have in the, the forgiveness of sins. We can go to our Heavenly Father and we told Him we've messed up again. Please help me. And importantly, guys, especially guys here who are not vitally connected to this church, you will find that it's the church who helps you so much in this area. We need the church. We need one another to help us grow in this way. But this is hard. This is intimidating. That's precisely why Scripture calls us to be courageous. And this courage will be the fruit of Christ-dependent faith. So, men, I call you and myself today to take up the calling to be courageous, Christ-dependent leaders for the good of your family, the good of your church, and the good of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wonderful text in Genesis that helps us see what male passivity can do and why we need to resist it as men. But we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Perfect man, always active in obedience, never yielded to sin. He stands in our place. He is our Savior. He has now given us all righteousness so that we stand right with you, even when we blow it. As guys, you've given us the grace and the resources, not only for forgiveness, but now to make progress, to, to change, to become men. And what a joy it is to walk in godly masculinity, to fulfill your calling in our lives. It is truly a joy. It is truly pleasurable. It is truly pleasant, as the Proverbs say. So help us, each and every one of us, Lord, on this Father's Day, help each man here, whether married or single, to seek out godly masculinity from your word, to gather with the men here at this church so that we might grow, bring glory to you, and be excellent servants to this body. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.